TruthQuest podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of Truth. We want to start off today talking about replacement theology. It was brought up near the end of our Q&A, near the end of our last Q&A, and um, so I thought it would be good uh, to cover a few passages that really refute the idea that the church has replaced Israel. Now, there is a teaching that the church has received all the promises in the Old Testament that were given to the nation of Israel. This is called replacement theology or super cessationism. Most who hold this view don't believe in the pre-tribulation rapture of the church because when they say Israel or when it says Israel in the last days or in the tribulation period, they think it means the church because they think the church has received all the promises that were made unto Israel. And it is hard for them to understand that anyone would believe in the church would take would be taken out to be with Christ. It's hard for them to believe that the church would ever be taken to be with Christ. Um, while God deals, restores, fulfills, and the, all the promises he made to Israel. Now, before we look at the passages, let's consider some facts about replacement theology. First, this became popular uh, during right before the time of the church father Augustine, when the nation of Israel was completely desolate. Luther and Calvin believed this theology and made anti-Semitic statements. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who believes in replacement theology is anti-Semitic, but what I am saying is that the many in that time period were anti-Semitic. Literally, um, Luther wrote things about the Jews that today uh, we just see as being something that is completely appalling. Now, God is no longer dealing with Israel. If God is no longer dealing with Israel, then there is not a pre-trib rapture because then all the promises to Israel uh, that they're going to be restored, that the tribulation period is a time of Israel's trouble, would now be a time of trouble for the church. The fourth thing, that the church is made up of people who are Gentile and Jewish is not proof of replacement theology. Sometimes they'll point to the fact that the Bible says that Gentiles and Jews became early Christians. The blindness didn't happen to all those who were Jewish. And this is not proof that replacement theology is uh, uh, is true. Replacement theology, the idea that God gave promises to Israel and then gave them to the church and did not give them to Israel, I believe maligns the fairness of God. Now, let's take a look at five scriptures that talk about what replacement theology, uh, how replacement theology cannot uh, be true. The first one is Isaiah 49, 15 and 16. It says, can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son um, of her womb? Surely they may forget. Yes, I will not forget See, I have inscribed you. I will not forget you. I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. So here in Isaiah 49, he promises that even if a mother forgets the baby in her womb, he is not going to forget the nation of Israel. And God built the nation from Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, and then the the 12 sons of Jacob to bring forth the Messiah that would bless all worlds. 
The second passage that helps us is Romans 11, 25 and 27. And I talk about this one often. Blindness would happen to Israel for a while and then they would be saved. It says in Romans 11:25, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant uh, of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Blindness in part has happened until. It goes on to say, and so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them that I will take away their sins. Now, this is Romans 11, 25 and 27. It's well into the church age that God promises that all of Israel is going to be saved. Now, we have in Luke 21, 24, Jesus making this statement, and they will fall by the edge of the sword, talking about the city of Jerusalem and the people of the city of Jerusalem. This was a prophecy from him. Written, he said this sometime in the early 30s. It's fulfilled in 70 AD, some 40 years later, and it says, and be led away captive into all nations. Just as he promises, literally, they'll be led captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Just as it was a promise that they were taken out of the land, literally, and it was fulfilled, so they would re-enter Jerusalem and have. Jerusalem has become part of Israel again today, even as the Bible promised it. Now, God also prophesied that Israel would have salvation in Jerusalem. Listen to Zechariah 12.10. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only son and grieve for him as one who grieves for a firstborn. That is, God's going to pour out a spirit of mercy and grace on Jerusalem. This was Zechariah back in the Old Testament that God was going to save them. And when, when would they look upon God whom they would pierce? That's what it says there. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. It's God speaking. Go back and look at Zechariah 12. It's God talking. And he says that he's going to uh, forgive them their sins, pour out a spirit of mercy and grace on Jerusalem. Why would God make us such an, uh, a promise if he never planned to do it? Even the, the tribulation period is a time of Jacob's trouble. This is Jeremiah 37. Alas, for the day is great, so that none is like it. And the time, it is a time of Jacob's trouble. Remember, Israel's name was turned from Jacob to Israel. Israel means ruled by God. Jacob means heel catcher or surplanter. So surplanter became ruled by God. And the tribulation period will be a time of Jacob's trouble. But it says he'll be saved out of it. This is very much like Romans 11.25 that says all of Israel will be saved. Now, God gave a great example that Israel would never cease. This is Jeremiah 31, 35, and 36. It says, thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, the ordinance of the moon and the stars by the light of night, who, dist uh, who disturbs the seas and the waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If these ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall cease from being a nation before me forever. 
God promised in the time of Jeremiah that as long as there was night and day, Israel would be a nation. Now, they were taken away from being a nation again, but they are a nation again in our day. When you talk to someone who believes in replacement theology, they say things like, well, this is just a coincidence that Israel is a nation. Now, let me give you one more passage. This is Zechariah 8, 20, 22 and 23. It says, yes, my people are strong nation, shall come to seek the Lord of the host in Jerusalem and pray before him. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from every language and every nation shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man saying, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. That's Zechariah 8, 23 through 25, talking about the millennium period when God is moving among the people of Israel. This is still in our future, and this is God's word. And these things are indeed going to come uh, to pass. And so, replacement theology, although it is, if you're all millennial, you probably believe in a replacement theology, um, you're post-millennial, you might still believe that God's got his hand on the nation of Israel. Uh, if you are non-literal in taking in your study of the Bible, then you're going to take all of these passages, you're going to try to make them into metaphors. I think that's a dangerous thing to do. But if you take the Bible as literal as you can, then you believe Israel will be a nation again. And they became a nation again in 1948. Uh, they took um, um, a majority of uh, the Golan Heights, I think it's 67. They took Jerusalem in 73. And God and Jesus himself said, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And then they're all going to be saved. And so replacement theology is just not true. God loves Israel, is restoring them, working among them today, and is going to save them all. Now, I don't know that all means all of them, but I do know that they are going to um, be saved. Now, one more thing we talked about last week that there seemed to be a little bit of confusion about was the concept of messianic Jews. So, you've got Jews for Jesus. Um, unfortunately, in history, a lot, of, a lot of people in the name of Christ persecuted the Jews. They came against them. Uh, they murdered them. They slaughtered them and uh, in, in the name of Christ. And that has caused many who are Jewish um, to not like Christians, to dislike Christians. Now in Israel, they realize that evangelicals love Israel and believe that God's hand is on them. And so there's an openness to them today. But still, when because of the hatred of Christianity over the years, when someone who's Jewish becomes a Christian, they often don't wanna say that they're a Christian. So they will say they are a Jew for Jesus or they are a Messianic Jew. Sure, there are people who are Jewish who believe in a Messiah that's not Jesus. But the phrase Messianic Jew is a phrase, look it up on Wikipedia, look it up wherever you want to. The phrase Messianic Jew is a phrase that means someone who has received Jesus as their Messiah. It is just ways that they're trying to figure things out without having to say that they're a Christian. Now, I think this is unfortunate, but I understand the history of how Jewish people were treated called Christ killers. 
and it's hard for them to look past that. In fact, it's one of the reasons that many Jews today will not even look at Christianity because of the way they were treated. But once you begin to love them, begin to show them certain passages, then you can reveal to them that Jesus indeed is their Messiah. And there are more people coming to Christ, more Jews coming to Christ today than ever before, which is something that is so absolutely exciting. Now, I want to welcome you guys to our Q&A. Uh, we have our first question from, from Matt Grossman. Matt joins us from Facebook, so his question is a little bit longer. Um, Matt says, when Scripture says that all of Israel will be saved during the tribulation period, what Jews are considered Israel? Will... Um, Will, like the Jews in Tucson, be saved during that time? Uh, uh, Part two. It seems like being a Jew during the tribulation period would have and would be an advantage. I agree with that. They are taken with wings of eagles and they are protected from the Antichrist. It says, um, versus being a Jew today or dying today without acceptance of Jesus. Yes, just like anybody else who dies today without acceptance of Jesus, right? No difference between Jew or Gentile. You receive Christ or you don't. And if someone doesn't know Jesus, if they're Jewish, they, they perish. If someone knows Jesus and they're Jewish, they perish. It says the Jew during the tribulation period seems to be given a second chance. I don't know if I'd call it a second chance or given a chance. Uh, God is restoring the nation to himself. They turn to him now as the Messiah. It's not a second chance, it's their first chance. It's just like when you came to Christ, Matt, and gave your life to the Lord, so these people give their lives to the Lord for the first time. It's not like they followed him and then didn't follow him, so they're given a chance, even though they initially deny Christ as the Messiah. No? um, Sure, but so do, how many Christians, how many Gentiles deny Jesus as their Messiah for many, many years and then get saved? That's not a second chance. That's them giving their lives to Christ, right? Let me go back to the first part of your scripture. You say when scripture says that all Israel will be saved during the tribulation period, what uh, what Jews are considered Israel? Uh, Will, like the Jews of Tucson, be saved during that time? Okay, so anyone who is of the lineage of of Isaac um, is, is going to be Jewish. And God knows who they are. It doesn't matter where in the world they live. Uh, If they are Jewish, then they are going to be drawn back to God. And, And see, now here's the thing, Matt. Let's just think about what's happened here in the last, wow, not even, I mean, considerably, not considering the time we live in not that long ago. In 1988, the first time that I ever traveled to Israel, it was relatively, there were relatively few Jews there, relatively. Now there are 6.8 million, and the, the land has changed completely since that time. And these people have, didn't multiply there. They're coming in from all different nations. God said in the Old Testament, I'll call them from the north, the south, the east, and the west. So they come from all over the world. There are Jews that lived in Tucson who are now citizens in Israel, literally from all over the world. Very few Jews were actually born in Israel. Very few out of the 1.6 million. It's kind of like Tucson. Um, Very few, there are very few um, 
Jews that were, I'm pitching you, there are very few Christ, uh, people, people who were born in Tucson. My wife's a fourth generation Tucsonian, which you don't ever hear of. I moved here in 1985 when I was 25 years old. So that's what Israel's like. People have come from everywhere and now they're part of that nation. And I believe that when God begins to work in their lives, and like I said, not only outside of Israel, but in Israel today, Jews are becoming Christians. So much so they're wanting to pass laws against it. So um, I hope that answers your question. Um, I do believe that they are gonna be saved during the tribulation period, but I also believe that the rest restoration period is, is beginning now. The land of Israel is totally desolate. God gave some promises. He said the children, the people of Israel are gonna be dispersed around the world. That happened in 70 AD. Then he said the land was gonna be desolate, completely desolate. And that happened during the time between 70 AD and uh, say 18, late 1800s. Then God said he was gonna restore the land because his people were about to come. This is Ezekiel 36. And so God restore, started restoring the land in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And then the numbers of the people from Israel around the world began to increase even as God said they would during the early 1900s. And then Israel became a nation in 1948. And then Jerusalem came back under their control. All of these things were prophesied. Even Jesus prophesied that Israel, that Jerusalem is gonna be trampled underfoot until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. The Jew has returned to Jerusalem. The Israelis have returned to Israel, and that is incredibly significant. And now we're starting to see this spiritual restoration there. Um, we released a video this week on the rebuilding of the third temple. And you may want to go watch that. I kind of connect it a little bit to what's going on here of what God's doing. And there will be a rebuilt third temple, not because we are no longer going to be the temple of God, the church, or Jesus isn't, but because they're going to rebuild it and the Antichrist is going to do the abomination of desolation in the third temple. All right. So thank you, Matt. I think I answered all your questions. If I didn't, just go ahead and uh, put a follow-up there with the one, uh, with part of it that I didn't answer. But thank you very much for your questions. Always very thoughtful. Um, Rakaya, good to see you. We have a question from Rakaya. And if you are joining us for the first time on TruthQuest Podcast, it's good to have you here. If you have a question, it can be on anything regarding Christianity, prophecy, the Bible, nuances about how you live your Christian life. Uh, it can be on any of those things. So Rakaya says, a few weeks ago, I felt compelled to preach the gospel to my Muslim grandmother in discussion about what prayer is before I came to Christ. She used to ask, uh, and she used to take jabs about Bible corruption. All right, so I'm not quite sure what your question is. I'm sure you'll you'll finish it out. What happens is is that YouTube uh, doesn't give you enough room to be able to write it out. So you got to be creative, or you got to say part one, part two, in order to get it. So um, last week you felt compelled uh, to share with your Muslim grandmother and discuss. Um, the discussions about prayer. She used to make fun of you. So that's all that I got. So if you can um, add the rest of that, Rakaya, we'll, we'll pick it up. All right. So we have a question from Haley. Haley says, can you explain on the concept of speaking the truth in love and share guidance and how to successfully accomplish this? Thank you. 
Um, thank you, um, Haley. Yeah, and, and I do think, okay, so we want to speak the truth and we want to always operate in love, right? What, what, what Christian would feel like, I don't have to love. You've got to speak the truth in love. And that doesn't mean they're not going to get offended with you because they may very well get offended with you. Uh, I'm trying to think of a couple situations. Uh, we had a guy at the church who was there to, to just lead people astray. He opened up his Bible in the coffee shop. Then when people would say, what are you reading? He would say, well, I'm reading about how the Bible teaches us that we're supposed to be under the law. And, and this church here is teaching heresy because they're teaching you don't have to be under the law. And so we warned him and we warned him of divisiveness a few times. Then we told him he couldn't come back. And then I walked out and he was there. So I just walked up and I said, I, I thought you weren't supposed to be here. And he said, yeah, but I can be here because this is a public place. And I said, no, it's a private place. The church is a private place. You can't be here. And I, you know, tried to be kind to him, walk in love, right? And didn't get upset, but just simply said, you know, you have abused the right to be able to be here by trying to deceive people while you're here. You're here for a pretense. And we're going to, we've got a police officer on premise, we'll have them remove you. And I went, I told the police officer, she came talk to them. And after a few minutes, I'm seeing her getting really uppity with them. And then he's upset that he's being removed from the church. Um, that was, I think, speaking the truth in love. The Bible says, warn a divisive man once or twice and then remove him. He might've thought that we had to Matthew 13 him, but we didn't have to. Um, speaking the truth in, speaking the truth in love is when you are sharing what the truth is, but you're letting the person know that you do love them. I think of 2 Timothy where it says, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel but be gentle to all, able to teach those that are in opposition. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 6, if anyone is in sin, you who are spiritual, go to such a one in a spirit of gentleness and restore them, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So you're going in a spirit of gentleness. You're not quarreling. All of these things would be a lack of love. Um, and so we speak the truth in love. Now, also, you got to ask yourself, you know, Jesus said, don't throw your pearls before swine. So there's a time to share and there's a time not to share. And so you've got to ask yourself, is this the right time for us to be talking about this? If I want to talk to someone about something, I prayerfully, I, I, I prayerfully look for opportunities. I'm asking God to open up opportunities. I'm asking God to be able to allow me to share so that it's a good opportunity that opens in a proper and a, and a good time. Um, there may be a good book for you to read, Haley, if you are interested. Uh, you can download it on Audible and, and listen to it. Um, I'm, I've listened to it one time. I think I'm going to listen to it again. Um, it's by Craig Kokel called Tactics. And I love a couple of things he says in the very beginning of this book. He says, if anybody gets mad, when you're sharing with them, you've lost. And so you can talk about things, but you've got to talk about them in such a way that people aren't going to get mad and learning how to diffuse it. And he talks about certain tactics and being able to do that. So someone says something to you and they make a statement. Um, I, I couldn't believe the Bible. It's, it's been written by men. That's an example that he uses. And so instead of, instead of saying, how dare you speak against the Bible and getting upset, you simply say, well, 
what makes something else written by men a lie? So you start to kind of ask questions like probing around a little bit. If uh, is everything that men have ever written a lie? And if it's not, then why would we reject the Bible right offhand if people can write things that are truthful? Just because you say it was written by men, it can't be the truth. See, so you kind of talk in that way. So Tactics is a, a book by Craig Kokel that will help you be able to learn to ask certain questions and how to handle a situation where somebody says something that is rude, that can get quickly out of hand. And unfortunately, we Christians step up to it. And I do love it for that reason. So um, I think that is hopefully answering your question on how you can speak the truth in love. Um, you can be you can be very direct uh, uh, in, in what you're saying. And, and yet let it be true. So if someone says, this is another example from his book, if someone says, um, well, I believe that, um, well, yeah, go ahead and, and, and get the book and read it. There are just a lot of different options and different ways in which you can even talk about divisive uh, uh, things like the unborn child, but you can do it in a way that nobody gets angry. And then you're, you're helping because you're putting, giving them thoughts, but they're not getting upset. And so I really suggest, I suggest that book to anybody here, really. I think it would really be helpful for you, even if you're in management, on how to interact with people that believe things differently. Okay? So I appreciate that. Um, we have a question from Psychman. Psychman, good to see you. Psychman says, um, apathy, not caring, the opposite of love. Okay? If greater love has no man than he who gives up his life for a friend, no lesser love has no man than he who gives up nothing for a friend. Make sense? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah. Um, I think that the life of a Christian is a life of sacrifice. And I think that you give up for people around you. Instead of getting your way and having to have your way, you're allowing other people to have their way. So thank you, Psych Man. I, I appreciate that. Um, we have a question from Nakwaya now. Right. Um, couldn't and yet in her religion. Okay, so trying to have a conversation with her. She used to get maybe belligerent. Is that what you said? Uh, the leadership uses quotes from the Bible to back up some um, not nice things. I was afraid to speak up for fear of not having any of my facts correct. Is this a sin? Okay, thanks, Rakaya. Um, no, okay. So, someone makes, someone like, a, like someone who is a Muslim, you run into them and they make a statement that the Bible says, you know, um, I don't know, the Bible says to, whatever, whatever it is that they say, the Bible says to do this, that's a bad thing, okay? Um, and you don't feel qualified to be able to do it. The first thing that I would do is I would ask questions about what they're talking about, why they think that's the case. I would also ask questions about the Quran. The Quran gives direction, as far as I understand it, to kill infidels. The Bible n never does that. The Bible, God uses Israel 
to bring judgment to the Canaanites who are offering their children. And so what I would do if I were you were quiet and you felt inadequate there is I would go do my homework. Write down the questions that you have and then go in and get them answered. Um, suggesting books. Since I'm in the mode of suggesting books today, I'll suggest, um, and I think that this book would be incredibly helpful, and it is the book, Is God a Moral Monster? And I do believe it is by Paul Copan. Is God a Moral Monster? And he covers a lot of Old Testament passages. He covers the things that were idioms in their day. An idiom is a grouping of words that you can't you can't derive what it means from it. For example, it's raining cats and dogs outside. That's an idiom. If um, Because you can't go, it's raining cats and dogs. And if somebody finds our culture in, in a thousand years, we're destroyed, finds our culture in a thousand years, and finds references that it's raining cats and dogs, they're going to go, did it rain cats and dogs in their day? They're not going to understand. And so a lot of the Old Testament is like that. For example, it says utterly destroy um, the Canaanites. Then you find Canaanites. Utterly destroy the Amalekites. Then you find Amalekites. After some king has said, I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. So in saying utterly destroyed, was that a way of saying that we have really, you know, driven them out of the land and done damage to them? Didn't utterly destroy them, but drove them out of the land instead. So these are just areas that you need to learn on. So I would... Um, Maybe keep a note on your, on your phone, under your notes, write down the questions that you had some trouble with, and then take some time to research them. Really go and, and, and look and find them out. Um, it's a fairly easy thing to do. Uh, you got to trust where you're going, the sites you go to, but you can find information. So it's not sin if you feel inadequate or not prepared to be able to, to debate someone. Um, I'll give you an example. We've got someone in our fellowship who's an astrophysicist. He believes some things differently than me. And when we get into science, I'm completely inadequate to be able to talk to him about it because he's an astrophysicist. Uh, he's a PhD astrophysicist. And I am not. And yet, I can go and I can research things and I can come back and I can talk to him about things that I can research, but I've got to take my time to find that. And so me passing on it at the moment because I don't feel equipped, everybody starts there. Everybody starts feeling ill-equipped. But the more you can answer that question and you find another one to answer and another one to answer, um, I, I, I like what, and I've had both Frank Turek and um uh, Greg Kokel, both of them tell me this. There's not that many questions out there. Whether you're talking to, about Muslims or you're talking about Christians, there's about 20 questions. Then there's a variety of that question that's asked so that it seems like there's much more. So you get your information on those 20 questions down solidly. And as a believer, as a Christian, why wouldn't we do that? Then we're able to give an answer to the hope that is within us. And you could start doing this by reading some very basic books on apologetics. Um, there's some very basic books that um, um, the cold case detective, uh, what's his name? Um, don't can't believe I can't remember his name now. Um, that he has that will introduce you to it. Uh, there's a lot of introductory books into 
uh, the problem with pain, the problem with suffering, that just will get you into the basics so that you can do do them. There's a lot of books on how to answer um, Muslims, and I you, you could look it up. How do I answer a Muslim this? And and then you look it up. But you want to try. You want to try to figure out where it's going so that you might be able to answer it more or how they might respond because they're not always going to respond in the way that you want to. But to answer your question directly, Rakaya, no, it is not sin um, that you did not speak up. Sometimes there's a better time to speak up. And certainly when you're not informed, then that's okay. All right? So thank you very much, Rakaya. I appreciate it. If you have a follow-up question, I would love to hear that. All right. Question, is it true that we have food, that we have found the gateway to the Garden of Edom and Adam's skeleton in Golgotha? I've heard this before. Do we know where the garden is located or Adam and Eve is buried? No and no. <laughs> so these things are just... You know, there are so many things that are out there, Jari, that you could that you could listen to and get taken, I don't know, into, you know, whatever conspiracy. They, the reason they don't want to believe this is because of this and that. No, we don't know where the Garden of Eden is. No, Adam and Eve's, um, their, their graves have not been found. All right, not that I know of. Um, if they have been found, they're going to make huge news. If the Garden of Eden is discovered, you're going to have Christians that are going to be bringing the strong news that that Ad, that the Garden of Eden was found, or that Adam and Eve um, had been um, had been discovered. All right. So thank you very much, Jari. I appreciate that. Uh, we have a question from Kara. Kara Kara says, "When Adam and Eve were naked in the garden, why uh, why will we be wearing robes in heaven?" We can't, we go back to Adam and Eve's time. Well, let's just think about this for a little bit. Um, Kara, Adam and Eve, I'm going to take your question down here, but I'm still looking at it, right? I still got it in front of me. Good to see you, Carl, joining us. Um, Adam and Eve were by themselves in the garden. They were husband and wives in the garden. They were created to live here on the earth and to populate the earth. We're going to be in heaven with millions of other people. We are not created to populate the earth. We will not be populating anything. We're not going to be like, like we're not, we're like the angels. We neither marry nor are given in marriage. So their nakedness in the garden before the sin nature was probably pretty attractive. And there's no need for that in heaven when no one is doing anything sexual. So yes, being naked was something sexual for them in the Garden of Eden. They were husband and wife and they had that, you know, they had that attraction to one another. And, you know, Adam said, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And so there is a big reason for us to look at the difference between um, Adam and Eve in the garden and and what we will be like in heaven. We won't be, be procreating. There's no reason to be running around naked. We should be wearing robes, okay? 
All right. Thank you, Cara. I really appreciate that. And um, didn't mean to laugh. I know it's an honest question. Um, it was just kind of a funny question, a thing for me to see everybody running around in heaven without clothes on, um, which there's just no, there's just no, there's no need for it. Adam and Eve were a, in a unique time and in a unique place. All right. So um, I appreciate your question. And if you're joining us here for the first time, uh, love, I'm really glad to have you here. Um, hope that you're blessed. If you have a question, write the word question down, and um, then you can go ahead and sub uh, submit it, and we'll get to it as we make our way through the comments section. Okay. Not sure. Uh, all right. Got some really long comments. Where are they coming in? Facebook? Yeah, really long comments here. All right. Don't have time to look through them. Um, so, uh, Russell has a question. Um, Russell says, and Russell, good to have you here with us. Glad to see you join us. Russell says, I watched a lot of Investigation Discovery. Okay. Um, God created evil people as a part of God's judgment. Does God create evil people as a part of God's judgment? Thank you, Russell, for your question. I'm going to go ahead and take it off here, but I do have it in front of me still. Take a look at it. Um, so let's 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 talk about why God would have allowed evil. First of all, God doesn't create evil; He allowed evil. So, God is good, and God created people good, but God also gave people a choice. And in order for there to be a choice, there had to be good and evil. You got good, and you got evil. And you couldn't be, you have good, and then you have nebulous. But it was good and evil, good in the absence of good, which would make evil. The absence of good makes evil. And so God had to give man a choice to be able to do that and to give a free will. Otherwise, you would be a robot. I love you, God. You would have to love him. There would be no other choice but to love him. So God gave angels choices. And when angels turned away from the goodness of God, then they became evil. And, and the existence of evil in the world today, God's not going to allow to go on forever and ever. People today say, well, why does God have to intervene? Why does he have to judge? Why does he have to bring things to an end? Because God's going to bring evil to an end one day. And we're going to have a world where there's no more pain and no more sorrow and no more evil. That world is on its way. But it's not this world. Where, where God created a world where men could choose to love him, where men could choose to, to be with God who was good or reject the God who was good and then find themselves in an evil world. So, does he do that as part of judgment? Perhaps. When someone decides that they're not going to live for God, God gives them over to themselves or gives them over to the sin. And sometimes in the sin itself, is the punishment for sin, which is why God doesn't want people, which is why God doesn't want people to sin, because he knows if the inherent in sin is something wrong. So if you, it says you shall not murder, but you murder someone, and now you feel guilty and you get arrested, thrown in prison, and put on death row, in your sin came the consequences of of 
your punishment for it. So in the evil, oftentimes there's the consequences of the evil. And the evil person is suffering because of the evil that they're into. It says in Romans 1, God gave them over. And when God gives you over to something, then that very thing becomes, it became their punishment. So I think you're thinking right, Russell. I think there's right thinking with it, um, except for the fact um, that God did not create evil. Um, and um, there is a passage where God, where it, it, in some translations it says God created evil, but it's not what the word means. And God didn't create evil, God created good and the separation from evil uh, is good. Separation from good creates evil and is evil. I said it backwards, all right? So um, thank you very much, uh, Russell, and good to see you. And good to see you too, Kimberly. Kimberly, uh, Empress Kimberly has a question. Um, the different doctrines, divisions of the church drives me nuts. Okay, yeah, mm, me too to a degree. This goes against Jesus' prayer for unity, okay? But he also warned about tares and wheat. Is there a remnant that's in unity? All right, so yeah, I think, Kimberly, there are remnants that are in unity. Um, first of all, we can have differences and still be in unity. We can be in differences and still have, have one accord among us because we have differences as persons. We have differences even in what we believe. Because I don't separate fellowship from someone who doesn't believe the way that I believe. Um, I have uh, have had in the past, and, and, and still so concerned of a friend, who believe in, uh, pastor who believes in all millennialism. But we fellowshiped as pastors. And we had great interaction. Had a lot of fun together. But... He was a Presbyterian, and I'm not. <laughs> Far from what Presbyterians believe. And yet we were still able to hang out together. We were still able to go out and have lunch. We were still able to have fun together, and there was still a unity there between us, even though we believed a lot of different things. So unity becomes a problem, or, or believing different things becomes a problem when non-essentials divide Christians. When all we're going to do now is argue about that non-essential. When we see ourselves through that non-essential, it doesn't matter to me what you believe about eschatology as long as you believe Jesus is returning. It doesn't matter to me what you believe about dispensationalism, what you believe about the gifts of the Spirit today, what you believe about um, what, what we would consider to be secondary doctrines. Now, it doesn't mean they're not important. It doesn't mean you don't discuss them. It just means that you don't divide over them. I don't see any reason to divide over them. And I don't see any reason to... I would have someone in our church... Now, a lot of pastor friends of mine would not have a cessationist in... The cessationists believe the gifts of the Spirit have ceased. Continuationists believes they haven't. A lot of my friends would not have a cessationist work as an usher. I don't have a problem with it. All I would ask is, ignore that, that subject. 
And if you're going to have a conversation with someone, don't make it a dividing issue and don't make it where you're trying to convince people of your of what you believe. Doesn't mean you can never talk about it. But um, yeah, the lack of um, the different doctrine, doctrinal divisions. Yeah, so I don't, I think that that's a, an attitude problem. The servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach uh, those that are in opposition. That's the direction that we've been given. So if someone believes doctrinally different than me, I don't have to get rude. I don't have to get divisive. I don't have to divide from them because of what they believe that's different. There's a lot of things that people can believe that don't affect um, what they have in Christ. And Jesus did pray for unity, but unity doesn't mean believing the same thing. Unity is unity in Jesus, in his salvation for us. So hopefully that is helpful. Is there a remnant that are in unity? You bet. Um, I don't have a lot of divisions in my life, um, Kimberly, with uh, Christians that believe other things. I don't have a lot of, I don't have a lot of disunity with them. Um, I can't think of someone who's a genuine Christian that I have a major difference with that that has affected our fellowship together. I can, th I can think of where someone has believed, not believed in a pre-tribulation rapture and not wanted to be involved in the church because of that, and it just saddened me. But, I mean, they're there, they just aren't, could be in leadership but aren't in leadership. And it just saddened me, that was all. So, yeah, I think that maybe Kimberly, and maybe I'm wrong about this, maybe you're seeing something that I'm not seeing. Um, I know people fight over things. I know they like to fight. I know they like to argue. And maybe just as a pastor that has discussed most of these doctrines, I just find myself easily going to, it doesn't matter to me what you believe or don't believe. Um, we can have fellowship together and we can respectfully agree to disagree. And I have no problem with that. Because my goal, Kimberly, is not to, I don't, my goal isn't to, 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 to convince anybody. My goal is not to make anybody believe what I believe. My goal is to present the word of God, the truth of God, and hopefully people will grab a hold of that. And God's word works in the hearts of those who believe. And so if there is a lack of unity among people who believe different things. It's not believing different things. It's the fact that they are servants of the Lord that quarrel. So they're really being unbiblical. They're not following what the Bible says. When the Bible says the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be able to teach. Okay, so thank you very much, uh, Kimberly. I appreciate that. Um, so we have a question. Um, how would you share the gospel with someone who is Alphabet Plus community, who is in the Alphabet Plus community? Um, thank you, um, Haley. I have had opportunities to share Christ with those who are in the Alphabet Plus community. And I'm not being disrespectful when I'm saying that. It's just, you know, it just keeps getting added to, and that's just kind of the way I respond to it. That's the, the phrase I use. Um, First of all, I've got to make, I've got to get my, my mind in the right place and realize that our world 
is headed down these roads. For how many years? 30? Has every major movie had to have someone in it who was gay? And that every major movie has to have someone in it now that's transgender or television show. And they're championed when they do. So that's the world. We're not part of this world. That's what the world is. And when people get all upset with what's happening, and I, boy, I understand when they were coming after your children, a lot of stuff that's happening with coming after your kids and with different morals than what you have. And you have to stand your ground when it comes to your kids, for sure, when they're coming at them with different morals and do what you got to do, do whatever you got to do. But the world believes a lot of things different than what I believe. So I got to get my mind right that this sin is not worse than someone who is in heterosexual relationship outside of marriage. Marriage is between a man and a woman, and God created them male and female, between a man and a woman that are in a marriage relationship. And then God blessed sex to be something for intimacy, for procreation, for pleasure. That's why God created them. That's why God created sex and in those confines. And God wants them in those confines. When someone gets outside of it, we can start looking at things that are worse and better. And because some things can be put in your face and can be a bit appalling, you know, I've always thought when people start bringing up that all sin are the same is the same and not sin, sin is any different, it really isn't true. And all sexual sin is not the same and I'm not going to elaborate on that. Um, but the first thing I do is get my mind right. That I love this person. And I want to love them. And so what's the best way for me to share with them? What's the best way for me to love them? It's certainly not to be angry at them and tell them they're going to hell. The same thing is true for a person who's a good person who's in a, in a heterosexual marriage, good person by human standards, who's in a heterosexual marriage. They're going to hell too, but I don't look at them, you're on your way to hell. You know, you want to reach them. And so you've got to figure out how to love those who are sinners. And, and Christ did. Christ was called a friend of sinners, a wine-bibber. Uh, he ate with sinners. The, the, the Pharisees, why does your disciple, why does your, 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 um, your uh, rabbi eat with sinners? They called him those names because he loved people that were in sin, like the prostitute or the at least loose woman who came and wept at his feet and, and dried the, her tears with her hair. And Jesus forgave her of her sins. There was something about Jesus that was approachable. So how can we be approachable to people in these communities? And part of that is not making enemies of those people that are in these communities. Um, it's one of the, we talked about boycotting before. It's one of the reasons that I don't like boycotting because it makes an enemy of us. It, look, if if a certain store is going to promote a certain immoral clothing to children, then personally, I'm not going to shop there. But that doesn't mean I have to go organize something at my church to get all the church to not shop there. Try to hurt them as bad as like we can. Um, there's other things going on anyway behind the scenes that, that aren't going to hurt them. They're not going to be hurt 
they're not going to be hurt from it. All right. Um, but I would pray for them. I would look for ways to share with them. Um, I would, I would ask them some questions. This is this is how I this is how I start sharing my faith, Haley. I, I start asking people generally if they believe in the supernatural. So you know, just an opportunity that we have it. Hey, let me ask you a question. Do you believe in the supernatural? Usually, people say yes. Most people believe in it. Have you ever had anything supernatural happen? I'll ask them. Do you believe in God? Do you believe that we'll have to answer to God? Now, all these questions may lead you down paths where you have to kind of check the way you interact and you've got to respond when they get upset of how to, to de-accelerate what's being said while you're sharing with someone who may go to zero to 60 in a, in a heartbeat. These are all things that are in the way in sharing with someone who is in, in, in what we would call sin. The same thing would be true if you're going to share your faith with someone who was a Wiccan. If you want to share with them, you're going to have to figure out how to really honestly share with them because that's what's going to work. That's what we're called to do. We're not called to be like the Old Testament prophets who are to stand on a street corner and to yell at someone that they're a sinner. That's not our call. When I look at what the Bible says, the Bible says we should be ready to give an answer, that we should live a quiet and peaceable life. That, and so that people can see the way we live for Christ and the things that we do. And so that's not, that's not screaming at people while they're walking by. So it's gonna take a lot of prayer. It's gonna be a difficult situation, but it can be done. And there are people that come out of it. Um, you may read some information, Haley, on Christians who have come out of homosexuality and who are now celibate, even though and they, they may be same-sex attracted still, but they've come out of it and they're celibate. They're just giving it to God. And there is an organization, and I can't remember the name of it now, sorry, um, but you can look it up, an organization for those that were homosexuals who are now serving God um, that puts out information that could be helpful. And um, I think that those things can be. I think a lot of times Christians just kind of write people off who are in that kind of a sin. And it's just such a bad thing to do. Instead of prayerfully considering it, knowing, yes, it's difficult. It's a, it's a hard, it's hard to be able to do, to, to talk to them. Um, but I think that that's a good thing to do, to really want to pray with them and interact with them. And I, and I hope that that is helpful, not only for, for that particular topic, but for any topic uh, that could end up being like talking to an atheist. You know, it's not going to be easy sharing your faith with an atheist, but there are certain ways in which you can talk to them. And again, um, to bring up the same book I brought up earlier, Tactics by Craig Kokel, it really goes through how to interact with people uh, in a loving, kind way, um, asking some pretty direct questions without people getting um, without people getting upset. All right. So again, good to have you guys here with us on our Wednesday night Q and A. Um, 
Dowling, good to see you. Who else do I see here? Uh, Violet. Yeah, Violet Stag, good to see you. Talon, good to see you. Um, and I'll make my way through here. We're coming to the end, the near, uh, near the end of our time. I'll see if we've got another question here. Uh, we do. We have a question from Susan. Ah, yeah. This is this is my book recommendation day. All right. So, question says, um, what do you do with someone who thinks God is a moral monster and doesn't want to be? convinced otherwise. So Jesus said, don't throw your pearls before swine. So you back away and you pray and you share with them if you, when you get a chance. You, you, you may say to that person, okay, so if I run into a person who says, you know, listen, God's a moral monster and the Old Testament proves that. I'm going to say, can I sit down with you and answer a few of your questions? I don't know if I'll answer them to you satisfactorily, but I'd love to be able to talk to you about why you think God's a moral monster and maybe show you why I believe he's not and why those Old Testament passages don't make God a moral monster. So that's, that's how I handle it. And maybe, you know, in order to do that, you've got to do your research, right? You've got to, you've got to know. So when someone says to me, well, I can't serve a God who says that he would smash a baby against a rock. And then you go, okay, it doesn't say that. I couldn't serve a God who said that either. So can we go look at that passage? I think it's Psalms 137. Can we go look at that together? And I can show you why it doesn't say that. And maybe your misunderstanding on that passage is the same as having misunderstanding as other passages, but it would take learning this. And so, Susan, I don't know if you're a reader, how astute you are as a student, but again, Paul Copan's book, Is God a Moral Monster, covers so much of this stuff, so much of um, Frank Turek's um, things, um, and um, Norman Geisler cover these things. I would, I would suggest starting with um, a book like I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Norman Geisler and... Um, um, and Frank Turek. Start reading that. Start getting information. Start looking at ways to make, to have answers. And maybe even make, again, a notepad where you or, or notes on your phone where you write down what the answers are. You just get the question and you get the basic answers to it and then you get better at it as you start looking at it because God isn't a moral monster and he doesn't treat people unfairly in the Old Testament. Sometimes God's making concessions to them. For example, a concession is when he said you could have, that they could have a king. And he told them in the law what to do when they got a king. But God didn't want them to have a king. So he made concessions. He made concession for divorce. He didn't want them to get divorced. But he said, for the hardness of your heart, God allowed you to get divorced. Or Moses allowed you to get divorced. And so there are concessions. And so these things are um, can easily take time to really go through them. All right. So thank you very much uh, for joining us. Appreciate you having, um, being here with us and hope that you're blessed by the time that you spend here. Um, Susan, we have a, a question from Violet Stag. Violet Stag. Violet Stag, good to see you. Um, Revelation 21.7 talks about nothing that defiles nor causes an abomination will pass through the gates of the New Jerusalem. So how do these things 
still exist of the en- if um, of the enemy is gone. Um, I think again we're talking about we're talking about idioms. Uh, we're talking about statements that God God could say nothing evil is going to enter into New Jerusalem. Doesn't mean there's anything evil outside of New Jerusalem. He's just making a statement that there's not going to be anything evil inside of the New Jerusalem. So you presumed that when nothing evil goes in, that means there's something evil that's without. But that's not necessarily true. And God making a statement and making a statement. Remember, he's, th- these these letter these letters in the Bible weren't written in vacuums. They were written in cultures to people. And we learn them more when we get back to their cultures. And when you learn phrases and idioms um, and allegories that go back to their day, we have a lot better learning about what's being said. So the very fact that it says no evil is going to enter in, well, one of the ways no evil could enter in is that it's gone. There is no evil at all. And I don't know of anything in the Bible that would declare that there's any kind of evil outside of Jerusalem when there's a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. You know, all those old things have passed away. There's no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. Um, I think it's his way of saying it's gone. That nothing shall pass through the gates of the new Jerusalem. No evil shall pass through the gates. Doesn't mean that there's evil out there wanting to pass through the gates. All right, Valestine, hopefully that's helpful. Uh, we are running out of time. If you have a follow-up to that, I will love to take it at another Q&A. But it's been good spending time with you guys today. Hopefully it has been helpful uh, to you. I see a couple more questions here. Let's see if I see any more follow-ups. I'm just going to scroll down here. Um, yeah, there's a couple more questions. So I'll take a look at these questions and see if we want to use them uh, for the beginning um, or in the beginning of one of our um, next Q&As. And um, if uh, you have a question that you want to talk about at Q&A, just go to any of our YouTube videos and just put the word, a question for the Q&A. Put it in there. I answer all the questions on YouTube. So you could put those in there and I'm going to be able to take a look at it and um, maybe we'll use it as one of the first questions. All right. So I appreciate you guys. Appreciate having you guys here. Hope that you guys have a really good day. Stay close to Jesus. Uh, There is a blessing in in hearing his word and doing it. So make an effort to keep the word of God in your life. The Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord and you'll receive the desires of your heart. Something about delighting yourself in the Lord where you receive, your, your, your desires change like abiding in the vine and his word abiding in you and your desires change. If you delight in the world, then you're going you're gonna to desire the things of the world. So walk in the spirit. You won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Stay close to Jesus. Um, love you guys. Love spending time with you. Uh, Lord willing, we'll be here again uh, next uh, on next, uh, let's see, Saturday. Uh, have another Q&A for you. Uh, we have a service in about an hour. Uh, we have a preview of the Battle of Armageddon, really. It's entitled The Grapes of Wrath tonight. And we see that God is a judge. And so we're going to be talking about God 
as a judge, but as a righteous judge, a righteous loving judge, and how all of those things fit together, because a lot of people see that those things don't fit together. So we have a service in about an hour. I'll be teaching in about an hour and 20 minutes or so from now, maybe a little bit less now. Um, and uh, I'll be teaching on the grapes of wrath out of Revelation chapter 14, the second half of it there. Um, if you can't join us, you can. there's two campuses here, uh, six o'clock on the East Campus, 7.15 at our West Campus. You can find those at calvarytucson.com. You can find out where those are at at calvarytucson.com. Um, the locations, and you can always watch us at 6, um, Roku, Apple TV, uh, YouTube, Facebook. Um, uh, you can you can join on and you can watch us on a lot of different areas. And any questions you have about the study tonight, you can ask on Saturday. That's the purpose for this Q&A. It's a supplement to the teaching ministry of Calvary Tucson to be able to interact with you and ask questions. I, um, I love doing meet and greets, and I answer people's questions at meet and greets. I do them Wednesday night um, at the East West Campus. I do them Saturday night at the East Campus, and I do them um, Sunday afternoon at the West Campus after the last service. Uh, and I love doing this here too. I love that we can have interaction here um, through this venue. I think it's absolutely awesome. All right, so God bless you guys, love you. Uh, we will see you later on, and I'm out.